even with knowing that those disparities exist and the data that shows that there are very real benefits to the bottom line when it comes to prioritizing diversity and gender and other areas as well. You know, we know that there are significant benefits in terms of how well companies perform when they have a greater representation of women at the top levels of their organization. But unfortunately, that representation doesn't happen without companies taking the time to specifically address those individual disparities. On the show today, we welcome Kelsey Pitlick and Rachel Bauer, co-founders of Guild Collective, an organization dedicated to change individual views and behaviors that shift workplace cultures and break down gender barriers. Kelsey has an internal drive to solve problems, and Rachel is often the first to point out if something is unfair or inequitable. Kelsey has an undergraduate degree in marketing and interactive media studies from Miami University and a master's degree in user experience design from Kent State University. Rachel has an undergraduate degree from Kent State University and a master's degree in higher education administration from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. You are listening to Dear Human Resources, and I'm your host, Marilyn Germain. In this episode, Kelsey and Rachel are going to talk about how HR managers can make a measurable difference in gender equity. Good to have you on the show, Rachel and Kelsey. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Yes, thank you very much for having us. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with the term gender equity, can you define it, Rachel? I think it's important when we think about defining gender equity that we realize that in order to understand equity, we also need to have the context on the way that equity relates to the term equality, because people tend to use them interchangeably when really they aren't. So I'm going to give these very basic textbook definitions of these words, and it's just really important that we address the nuance there, and then I can go into a little bit more detail about the gender side of things. For equality, that is actually the quality or state of being equal, the quality of having the same rights, the same social status, etc. Equity, which is what we're talking about today, is the quality of being fair. And like I said, we often think of those as interchangeable. We often equate, pun intended, equality with fairness, but it's really more about looking, especially in the workplace, it's about looking at equitable practices. Equity can be defined as giving everyone what they need as a unique person with unique barriers and unique identities, what they need to be successful. So in other words, it's not giving everyone the exact same thing. That would be equality. If we give everyone the exact same thing, expecting that's going to make everyone equal, it assumes that we all started on the same starting point. And this is really pretty inaccurate because everyone is not the same and we don't start from the same place. And I think it's really important when we think about gender equity that we think about all of the different barriers that women have been systemically set up throughout thousands of years to come into contact with throughout their entire lives, their personal lives, their professional lives, and the way that those barriers start them at a different jumping off point than many of their male counterpart. 
And so I think when we think about gender equity, it's really about, you know, making sure that we are able to create a playing field where women and men can start from the same place. It's about getting them to the same place to to grow from and then making sure from there that we're giving the equal resources that they need to be successful. We know that disparities exist now and have always existed for women in the workplace. You know, those are disparities in income and representation and career progression and access to education and mentorship and sponsorship. And I mean, I could go on and on. So we just think that it's really critical for employers to understand that their women identifying employees are going to have different respective needs than their male counterparts, and most of which those male counterparts wouldn't have encountered in quite the same way throughout their professional lives. Your discussion reminds me of a recent report from uh, UN Women. At the current rate of progress, it will take about 286 years for the world to achieve gender equality. And for the World Economic Forum, it will take another 132 years to close the global gender gap. And so what you're saying reminded me of that. So we know that gender disparities exist in income, in career progression, and so on. Isn't that knowledge enough to drive change? I can jump in here. This is Kelsey. And I mean, unfortunately, my short answer is no. You know, we've had this understanding of those disparities that exist. You just talked about how long it's going to take for those gaps to close. Rachel talked about the specific disparities, income, career progression. But what we see is that even with knowing that those disparities exist, And the data that shows that there are very real benefits to the bottom line when it comes to prioritizing diversity in gender and other areas as well. You know, we know that there are significant benefits in terms of how well companies perform when they have a greater representation of women at the top levels of their organization. But unfortunately, that representation doesn't happen without companies taking the time to specifically address those individual disparities, how people are treated, how they're compensated, rewarded. And in order to actually take the time to address those disparities, it needs to be sort of an ongoing effort. And the people that are running our organizations are just that, they're people. They are subject to the flaws that that all humans have, the biases that all humans have, and it can ultimately keep people from being able to kind of continue that effort despite it being right, despite it being profitable, because it really does require that investment and time commitment when everyone is stretched so thin, diversity, equity, and inclusion tend to be the things that kind of fall to the bottom of the priority list. Well, since you're talking about organizations, what are some of the common myths that employers assume about women in the workplace? And how can HR managers work to dispel those? I love this question because it's just timely. The 2023 Women in the Workplace report, which is released 
I think it's its seventh year. It might have been its eighth year. Kelsey, I'm sure, knows. But it's released yearly. It's a survey done of thousands of individuals across hundreds of companies and industries in the United States from Lean-In and McKinsey. Their 2023 research was really centered around these four key myths that are extremely damaging for women in the workplace. And they're things that women are often assumed to be true, but they aren't. So these myths are, you know, that, that, that women are becoming less ambitious, that the glass ceiling is the largest obstacle to women being successful, that microaggressions have a micro or a small impact, and that it's mostly women who want and benefit from flexible and remote work. And all of these things are extremely important when we think about gender equity in terms of the way that we distribute resources to our employees based on their unique needs. So in terms of these myths, you know, the, the report does an incredible job of turning them on their head, but I'm sure that our listeners who experience the side effects, I guess, of, of these myths on a daily basis. I'm sure they'll be listening and nodding along because they'll recognize some of those effects. But let's take the myth that women are becoming less ambitious. What we know is that at every stage of the corporate pipeline, women are as committed to their careers and are as interested as being promoted as their male counterparts. So, you know, this is true when you zoom in and you look at director levels and C-suite levels. We know that young women are especially ambitious. We know that nine out of 10 women want to be promoted to whatever their next level is. And that three out of four aspire to be senior leaders. What's interesting is that while we saw many women leaving the economy during the height of the pandemic, we also see now, you know, this many years in that the pandemic and the increased flexibility that we had during that time, it did not dampen women's ambitions. It actually allowed women to see that, you know, we could work flexibly and also pursue career goals, which is relevant to the flexible working myth as well. For the glass ceiling, for those that aren't familiar with the term, the glass ceiling is this idea that the most difficult thing for women to progress in their careers is to reach that highest level, that ceiling. What is actually true is that the biggest place that we see women drop off in representation is actually from entry level to manager roles. And again, from that study, this is the ninth year in a row that they've seen this, right? It's especially true for women of color they see the steepest drop-off in representation from entry level all the way to the C-suite. And it's really drastic. We see their representation drop by two-thirds. When we assume that microaggressions, those are those demeaning or dismissive comments and actions that are rooted in bias, that are directed at people because of their gender, race, or other aspects of their identity, when we assume that microaggressions have a micro-impact, but the opposite of that is actually true. Their impact is quite lasting. Women who experience these are much less likely to feel psychologically safe. It makes it harder for them to take risks at work as a result, and they're less likely to propose new ideas or raise concerns. They're more likely to be considering quitting their jobs, and they are four times more likely to always be burned out. With flexibility, I already talked about this in, in the first myth of women being less ambitious, but women 
and men prioritize flexible working. It is not just women. Both women and men see flexibility as a top three employee benefit to their organization success. I think it is so important to think about these myths when we think about what HR managers can do to address them, right? So first and foremost, HR managers are in such a great position within organizations to be the ones who are questioning the assumptions that we make, their own assumptions as people, but also organizational assumptions as well. So asking yourself, why might the opposite of what I think be true? It's essential to making change, right? They're in a pivotal position to drive change in these assumptions as they have access to and can gain access to more data, as I know that you know. All of these assumptions can and should be dispelled by intentionally gathering data on employee perceptions, experiences, and retention. And then using that data as benchmarks, right? We know that we can implement programs and targeted interventions. We can collect more data. We can rinse and repeat, be agile, and know that it's a process. Because like Kelsey said, you know, knowing that gender inequity exists is not enough to make change, right? So HR leaders are really in this great position where they have access to and can gain access to more data then they can actually use that data as a catalyst for transformative change because we know it's not going to happen just with the numbers themselves, right? They can identify what the change needs to be and then they can put those tools in place. That can be training programs. It might be overhauls of huge business systems. It might be small things, but they have to start by looking at the data and using the experiences of their employees to motivate the company most importantly, that that leadership to want to be a part of the solution to dispel these myths. Well, actually, I'd like to focus on leaders for a minute. What do you think is the most important trait organizational leaders need to foster gender equity in the workplace? And perhaps also how HR managers can drive and grow that necessary trait? Yeah, so Rachel talked about that idea of really being motivated to make a change, to be part of a solution. And I think we need to acknowledge the fact that it's really hard to change behaviors. It's really hard to make a shift in the way that we're approaching our day-to-day in order to dispel these myths, in order to increase that representation and the inclusion of women in our organizations. And one of the most important things that we have found in doing this work for almost nine years is that the missing link to get that motivation to actually interrupt bias is empathy. So often we will be in a session, a program, a training, workshop, whatever it might be, and we'll have a participant raise their hand and You know, if it's somebody that's in senior leadership, most often, statistically, if you look at a corporate pipeline, that tends to be an older white male. And they'll raise their hand and they'll say, you know, I really didn't realize that bias was still an issue, or I didn't realize that women were still encountering these barriers until I had a daughter enter the workforce. And sort of this light bulb moment that actually for those participants has motivated that change in behavior, that empathy that they have by being close to someone 
who has experienced this can be really impactful on their desire to make changes. And so we have really been exploring different ways to increase that empathy among participants, because unfortunately, we can't wait for every single person to have a daughter enter the workforce. You know, I guess if we have a couple hundred years until we're going to reach gender equity, maybe we will see more people have that experience than we'd like. But what are some ways that we can really embed that empathy into our day-to-day work so more people are motivated to make that change? Because we have the head, we have the data that we talked about earlier, but that heart piece is what we often see is, is missing. So one thing that we've implemented is a gender inequity simulator into a lot of our trainings where you can actually have people go through different experiences as different personas and have that empathy grow through the experience of seeing what another person is encountering or kind of feeling that along the way as well. So Kelsey, you've been doing this work for a long time. What do you think the biggest barriers for HR managers today while trying to make progress in gender equity at their organizations are. And do you think those have shifted over time? I think that HR managers have a very hard job when it comes to driving impact while also meeting a lot of resistance. In the work that we do, um, we definitely recognize that talking about privilege and power, identity, diversity, equity, inclusion, all of those things can make people uncomfortable. And that's definitely something that HR managers are up against as well as they are trying to drive this work forward. I had one person recently share that the foundation of this work itself is pushing on people's fight or flight response. Another person said that that resistance has really been heightened by different topics becoming more politicized or having backlash, even if they're in areas where, you know, many of us feel like politics don't necessarily have a place. It's not really related, but there's still that undertone or that undercurrent of, feeling like there's a a right or a wrong way to do things or a right or wrong way to talk about things. And ultimately, there's just a lot of comfort in the status quo that sometimes progress can only be made when people are already uncomfortable. So you asked about that shift over time. And I think that the pandemic period or the height of the pandemic was actually a great example of a wake-up call for people where changes were able to be made in our organizations because everything was changing. There was no comfort to rely on. But now as things are kind of returning to normal, which I always kind of put in quotes, it's harder to disrupt the way that we've always done things. As with any transition, there's sort of grief and saying goodbye to the ways of the past, but sometimes that grief is simply a growing pain on the path to something better. And so really being able to acknowledge the resistance and meet that resistance, meet people where they are to be able to increase that empathy and increase that motivation so that the work you're doing is not simply checking the box. It's really driving that transformational change. 
I have another question about HR managers. How can they support all employees in bringing their whole selves and their best selves to their work? I love this idea, first of all, this concept of the whole self. I think when I was starting out in my career, I didn't understand how important it was to be able to be authentic within the workplace. And it's something that now that I recognize the need for it and the power it has, I recognize how impactful that it is for all employees. And what really matters when HR managers are wanting to make a real difference in gender equity is about caring about that individual employee experience. That's why we created that simulator that Kelsey was describing. But in that, we are encouraging everyone to see that employee as the whole person that they are in and outside of work. All of the experiences that we have day in and day out that make up the way that we perceive and exist in the professional world. We have progressed so far as a society when it comes to acceptable ways of working flexibly, but there are still stigmas about working from home, even and especially if other members of your team are in the office. And we know that those stigmas, for example, are more pronounced if you are a working mom or a, a woman of color. So really caring about the whole person, knowing and understanding that the whole person needs to thrive in order for your employee to perform at their peak is key, right? So understanding their experience, what is it like for them to be a working mom in your company, to be a underrepresented woman of color within your company? What do they experience? What does it feel like? And how does it impact the way that they show up at work and how much of themselves that they can really bring? So this comes back to equity versus equality, which we started out our discussion with, because with HR managers, there is the ability to impact the resources that individuals can give to their direct reports, right? So HR has a huge impact on career support and mentorship structures, connection to sponsors, ensuring that within processes like performance evaluations and career progression, that there is equitable practice there and that individuals that need additional support are receiving that. So that list can really go on and on. But when we think about the resources that HR managers can provide or gatekeep, it's essential that HR managers, when we're thinking about the how, right, how can they make sure that their employees are showing up as their whole selves? It's really important that HR managers understand, own, and continue to build greater understanding of two things. First, that women, especially women of color, trans women, lesbian women, you know, women with intersectional diverse identities of all kinds, they tend to have worse experiences at work. That's what data provides, right? They have less access to support from their supervisors, less access to opportunities. Less access to opportunities means that they're starting out from a lower spot, um, meaning that's the inequity that we're talking about, right? The second thing that HR managers need to own and understand is that managers have, and not just HR managers, but managers, especially those that are at the mid-level, anyone that manages someone else, they have the most direct influence on the way that their employees perceive their workplace than anyone else, right? So those people who are having a worse experience at work, their managers have the most direct promise 
to impact them, to help them to show up as, as their whole selves and to feel like they are included and that they can be long. As a group, managers are really where the HR function of companies should be focusing when it comes to making the biggest level of impact, creating that that ripple effect that changes culture, that changes the, the behavior to help to break down some of the barriers that we focus on in, in our work to make sure that we're providing those equitable resources to employees that actually need them. So, I mean, I think that when we think about HR's role here, I know this is a long answer, but it all goes back to the fact that HR are incredibly powerful and uniquely positioned as the people who are the driving force in determining what education and training their employees need, who needs to get what, and when, right? So prioritizing managers and leaders, um, especially the buy-in that that you need to gain from leaders, being really intentional about growing the empathy in that group. While empathy is an essential role in all employees, it is going to be so impactful for creating, again, that ripple effect, those concentric circles of providing the empathy needed for managers and leaders to encourage and support the whole self for all employees, especially those that need it the most, right? Because that's what equity is. What we see happen too often though is, and this is kind of why we're seeing, I think, a bit of a pullback on budgets and effort when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion work is that for the past several years, especially throughout all of the diversity work that we saw reach a real tipping point in in the prime peaks of COVID, we know and what we saw is that many companies sort of took a canned approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're going to hire this person to be sort of our, our show person for diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're going to do this unconscious bias training. We're going to you know have this many events each year that support different groups. But we know that those canned approaches don't actually work in the way that companies intend them to, oftentimes because they're not addressing their employees' individual needs, right? So we we created a really simple audit that listeners can fill out, especially those in that HR role, that you can actually, it takes less than five minutes, you can answer a few questions and actually get sort of a detailed prescription of what it is that your organization can do in terms of the jumping off point or the where do we go from here and kind of does those hard steps for you of what is the positioning that we can take to propose this and get the buy-in from leadership that we need to get this started. So um, for anyone that's interested in that, that's just at our website, guildcollective.com slash start. And we spell guild G-I-L-D. But really it comes down to say that HR managers, they have the ability to target interventions with the employees, which we think are managers and leaders that need it the most when it comes to grow the empathy needed to fully support and create that culture of belonging. So Rachel, are you optimistic about the progress regarding gender equity in general? I mean, in Western countries anyway? You know, this is a hard question. So we have seen some progress in representation. Representation is one of the many different metrics that we use to tell how successful that we are in this work, right? So we have seen some progress. We have seen some small wins in the gender wage gap. It's important to celebrate those. Absolutely. I would say that during the height of the pandemic, I was very, very hopeful. 
That hope has lessened a bit as we've let women's issues slide back to the back burner. Companies got very nervous when they saw women leaving in, in large numbers, rightfully so, because we know that companies with a larger representation of women and diverse employees are more profitable and more successful, right? But as things have returned to normal, I would say that my optimism has kind of slid a little bit as well. I mean, if we look at things like, for example, the reduction in childcare funding that's happening, this is a prime example of how we're sort of like deprioritizing the unique needs that impact so many women in in the workplace and, and reducing that support. However, all of that being said, I do remain optimistic. I wouldn't do this work if I couldn't remain optimistic. I'm optimistic because I believe, especially in this generation and, and the next and the next and so on and so forth. I believe that the generations to come are going to continue demanding that we make strides to close the gender equity gap. They're going to do so with their voices at work. They're going to vote with their wallets on the businesses that they support or don't. And that is going to make a huge impact because at the end of the day, businesses need to make money. There is nothing wrong with that, right? But we need people who are willing to stand up and and make changes. I believe that HR managers are doing the brunt of this work now. I believe that they'll continue to do this work in the future because really while HR is sort of, you know, not often seen as this like flashy, innovative side of business, I think it's really where we see the innovation happen on how we motivate people, how we engage people, how we change people and how we influence people to be better at their jobs, to be better in their communities at work. And I think that they're going to continue to do that and and to do that and recognize the power of advocating for their underrepresented employees. So that's my, my sort of heavy answer there is I am optimistic, but I know it's going to take a lot of work. I just think that we can do that work. It's going to take time, but we're doing it. I have one question about the both of you, actually. Your bios indicate that both of you attended Kent State University. Is that where you met? It is actually not where we met. We were sort of ships passing in the night, um, if you will, at Kent. So Rachel was there for her undergrad. I was there for my master's. And we ended up meeting in Cincinnati. Um, so we were introduced by our husbands, actually, who also worked at the same company and connected the two of us. And then now we like to say that we've sort of taken over. We became friends, started a business together, and now kind of run the show in our respective households. But that is how we ultimately got connected in Cincinnati. And I'm now in the Cleveland, Ohio area, and Rachel is still in Cincinnati. So we have the um, Ohio coasts covered. Why did you decide to start a business together? How did that come about? We were both in positions in the career paths that we were in where we really liked what we were doing, but weren't necessarily feeling completely fulfilled in those spaces and just started to explore different ways that we might be able to gain that personal fulfillment in our careers as well. And our business actually looked very different when we first started, um, really focused in the women's leadership space and bringing women together to kind of build each other up in the process. 
But what we recognized very quickly is that if we're only focusing on providing women and other underrepresented employees tools to be successful, that's certainly one side of the approach. But what we're ultimately saying is, hey, burdened employees, here's an additional burden to take on these things to address the biases and the systemic barriers that are in your way. And really shifted our focus more towards the side of gender equity and inclusion work, specifically around understanding unconscious bias. And like we talked about, really motivating that empathy or kind of sparking that empathy for motivating change so that we can create workplaces and environments where everyone can be successful. And I, and I really emphasize that everyone because What we know is that when workplaces are set up in a way that is supportive to their employees and that are focused on objectivity and reducing bias, everyone is able to advance within the organization. Everyone is able to be more successful in their careers, have more of that work-life balance, if you want to call it that, or a lack of burnout, however you choose to kind of define that, everyone really benefits from those things. And so that's where we see so much of the value come from in in the work that we do and, and the way that companies are taking what they learn from experiences with us and all of the work that they're doing internally as well to really advance the experience for all of their employees. Thank you for your insights, Rachel and Kelsey. It was really insightful. Your comments were insightful and it was really great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having us. We are so appreciative and honored to be here. Yes, thank you so much. Support for this show comes from Western Carolina University, a campus of the University of North Carolina system with the technical assistance of Kelly Minnis.